Um, hi everyone, this is Madhumita Mantri. I'm product lead at Startry. Uh, Startry is an early stage B2B startup in Bay Area, working primarily on real-time analytics and anomaly detection uh, built on top of it. So I'm super proud uh, to be part of uh, this forum today and talking about uh, one of the favorite subject I have like rewards and challenges in taking zero to one B2B product in e-commerce especially and B2B space itself is very complex and difficult. I luckily encountered with Namrata uh, as part of product club. If you are part of product club, Sreya's product club, um, I met her there and then we started talking about and seems like she has uh, a lot of experience in this space and uh, I thought it will be great to chat with her about it and also open up the uh, forum uh, for anybody who wants to also share their experience. So that's what I'm looking forward to from the session today. So Namrata, uh, why don't you go introduce yourself? And tell us who you are, uh, what's your background, and how you got into B2B product in e-commerce, and what is something not on your LinkedIn profile? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me here, Madhumida. I'm looking forward to this chat today. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. Uh, my name is Namrita. I'm currently working as a principal product manager at Intuit. I have been a product manager for almost 15 years now. I've worked across both B2B and B2C products in fintech, insurtech, and e-commerce. Uh, but B2B e-commerce has been my focus for a large part of my career. Uh, I almost, it was like I discovered my love for uh, commerce and then for small businesses. And I decided that, um, you know, a combination of these two is where I want to sort of uh, learn, grow, and, you know, build products. Um, this is also the space where I had a startup for a few years of my own. Uh, it was called the Indie Project. Uh, and what we were doing is helping niche designers in India connect with wholesale buyers in the U US and European markets. Um, but prior to that, I have worked at uh, larger organizations like Wells Fargo um, and um, uh, William Sonoma in e-commerce. Uh, I also was lucky and fortunate enough to, you know, have the opportunity while I was at Wells Fargo to work on uh, the very first version of Zelle. Uh, that product was not called Zelle at that time. It was just a partnership between Wells Fargo and Chase. And it, it's evolved into a very, you know, uh, massive, robust uh, P2P uh, payments platform now. Um, what's not on my LinkedIn profile? Okay, uh, so my very first job, this was while I was still in India. I finished my undergrad in India. I grew up there, uh, finished my undergrad. And my very first job was in event management. It had nothing to do with product management or technology. I worked at this company called Bennett Coleman that owns Times of India, Filmfare, very large publications uh, in India. And um, yeah, I used to do events for them. I had never imagined I would become a product manager or work in technology. This happened very much by chance. Um, I came to the US, I did my MBA and my very first job was at this insurance company called Mercury Insurance, where I started off as at that back in that time, 15 years ago, there was product management that had not evolved the way it has today. So we used to still have like business analyst uh, titles and roles. That's how I started out. And I got lucky in that, you know, I was able to transition into a product owner and then a product management role. Yeah, so that's a little bit about me. 
वेरी एक्साइटिंग जर्नी नम्रा था एंड या थैंक्स फॉर शेयरिंग योर इंडिया टाइम लाइक व्हेन यू वर नॉन टेक एंड हाउ यू शिफ्टेड टू टेक दैट साउंड्स वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग एंड ग्रेट टू नो दैट यू हैड योर ओन कंपनी व्हिच इज फोकस्ड ऑन ई-कॉमर्स स्पेस लव टू हियर मोर ऑन दैट सो बिफोर वी डाइव इनटू अ फ्यू क्वेश्चंस आई हैव आई जस्ट वांटेड टू टेल आवर लिसनर्स that the format is going to be i have a couple of questions um i will go through that and then i will open up the floor for any of you to raise your hand and if you have things to share um i'll invite you to the stage you can unmute yourself and share or if you have questions for us you can ask us as well and say anything pressing comes up while we are chatting and you can't wait uh, do raise your hand and i'll invite you to the stage accordingly so with that my first question namrata to you uh, and there are different areas that we are going to cover today like primarily three areas one is identifying a b2b e-commerce opportunity validating an idea in e-commerce and then building a product that needs sorry meets the needs of uh, the target market so with that being the focus the first uh, section which is identifying a b2b e-commerce opportunity uh, my first question to you uh, namrata is if you can share with an example how do you identify a b2b e-commerce opportunity sure um okay i will start by saying that b2b in and of itself is a very large space because b2b businesses that you are uh, sort of solving for um can be of all different shapes and sizes a business can mean an individual it can mean a small business that makes under 1 million in revenue and maybe just has one other person working with them they can be 1 to 5 million in revenue which makes them sort of lower mid market and these are classifications that i'm using um that are uh, you know m- more popular in the us they may not apply as is in other markets um but that that's the reason why i'm sharing these revenue brackets so if it's like a 1 to 5 million uh, imagine it to be a very lower mid market 5 to 10 million or a little over 10 million might be an emerge a, a higher mid market and then you go into you know larger businesses so you can solve uh, you can come up you know look at opportunities in different um areas to see which one makes most sense for me my passion has always been in smb which is the uh, zero you know up to 10 million so it includes these um lower mid markets higher mid markets and uh, individual business uh, in businesses run by individuals that probably work with maybe one or two other people the reason why i focus on in this specific uh, segment is because they have some very unique challenges and you'll find that you know you they'll start out as an individual working with one other person they grow uh, they uh, get larger in size their complexities increase and very often they reach this point where you know at the 4 or 5 year mark they are unable to grow any further because they just don't have the tools or the know how to um grow and sustain their revenues uh, you know starts dropping and you'll find a lot of businesses dying out at that point so serving this you know the small business uh, space is something that i feel very strongly about so that will be my focus for the most part of this discussion how do we identify um, an e-commerce opportunity in this space now identifying um, this opportunity 
really is about understanding the problems faced by these customers, right? Like without identifying the problem and the problem space, it's very hard to say if there is an opportunity there. And the discovery process can start off in a lot of different ways. You can read about, um, you know, research about the industry, about the market. You can, um, you know, uh, get into specific tools that they use for different uh, phases of their life cycle, uh, see what competitors exist in those spaces, in those uh, specific, um, you know, problem areas read research online communities to see you know where what the voice of the customer is where do you find a thread uh, that is leading to or indicate indicative of a problem or opportunity space uh, you can do by observation one of the things that's worked most uh, for me through my uh, you know startup experience as well as here at intuit has been observation and talking to customers there is nothing like reaching out to uh, you know, potential customers that you have identified in a particular uh, target segment, talking to them and really understanding what, you know, is there, what are their largest pain points? What worries them? What keeps them awake at night? And then uh, trying to sort of build on top of that. I'll take a pause here and see if there are any questions before I uh, proceed. Or Madhumita, if you have any questions. Yeah, um, no, thanks for sharing. Um, I mean, the, your approach of identifying opportunity starts with the problem rightly said. And you mentioned about also like building empathy with the users, really understanding them. And that's where the uh, main hidden uh, challenges and uh, to like come up with a better opportunity that probably unsolved and adds value. So it's interesting. It's It's easier said than done. I'm sure there are some nuances uh, associated with it. And given your background in Intuit, Intuit talks, uh, hi talks highly about D4D. So if you yeah. could um, like share a little more, um, in, I mean, details in terms of what tips and advice, like whoever probably listening to it or trying to figure this out on their own. And it's not easy, like, I mean, getting hold of people is one part uh, and the second part is like how to build that deeper empathy uh, like yeah. what kind of tools or techniques people can use like maybe uh, giving some example of questions that they can ask or how you should do research also it's very tricky like you can randomly read uh, things or um, look into things but how you can be more objective about your research or how you can find those nitty gritty and figure out, figure it out so that you can find the right opportunity. So if you can share some um, like tips or framework or tools that would have worked for you or any other way. Um. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. And I think this is so critical to, uh, you know, problem, um, problem understanding and basically building that empathy for the user. Um, I'll talk a little bit like since you mentioned the D4D at Intuit, I will talk a little bit about that and I will get, uh, you know, provide more detail on how to get better at that D4D process. I'll also share with you what I did at my startup to sort of build that customer empathy. Very rightly, like you pointed out, Madhumita, it's not very often that, you know, customers are not easily available or your potential customers are not just easily accessible to everybody. If you're working in a large organization, you have customer VOC, you have, you know, a customer connect team like we do at Intuit, which will help put you in touch with customers. And once you are able to establish that connection, you can, you know, sort of schedule interviews with them. The other thing to do if you don't really know how to get in touch with customers is to go to them. 
So for example, and this, this also is not as simple as I made it sound just now, but I will give you an example to help you sort of, you know, contextualize what I mean. Uh, in my startup, when I was uh, working on my startup, we, our niche audience, the target market that we had identified was of emerging designers in India. And I had heard some, uh, you know, voice of the customer from uh, mutual connections on some online communities. And I wanted to learn more about it, but I didn't really have any direct contacts with these potential customers. So what I did is I did some research on, you know, how, where are these customers, customers available in larger groups offline, right? Not just in online communities, but offline. And I found one of the places that they are often found at is these offline trade shows. They are at these B2C events where they are selling their products directly to buyers. And what I ended up doing is going to many of these trade shows myself uh, across cities. So Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore. I went through to these cities and there were like 200 of these, um, you know, independent designers available at each location for me to sort of observe what they were doing in this space for me to establish contact and tell them, you know, I am trying to understand the problems that you're facing. And I would love for you, uh, you know, if you can give me an hour of your time uh, at your business so, uh, for me to watch you and understand, um, you know, how what your day looks like, what your hour looks like, and what are your, you know, the, uh, the pain points that you deal with on day to day. So that's how I did it at my own startup. At Intuit, of course, since it's a larger organization, and I mentioned before, we have a whole customer connect team that helps put you in touch with, your target uh, segment. Now, let's say we've set up these customer interviews, right? What we are trying to understand here is we are not going to them with a solution and asking them if that's what they need, because in all probability, if you do that, they will say yes, because now you're focusing on one thing and they are tuned into that and they can very easily relate to, uh, you know, at some point having a need for that. But if that product was really available to them, there is no guarantee that they will actually use it. So what you want to do is understand the problem space, map their journey, understand their pain points along the way. Now, how do you get better at some of these things? It's more about listening than it is about sharing. You have to ask you know, open-ended questions that lead them to want to share more of their lives with you, not just at their work, but also how that impacts them on their day-to-day -day in their personal lives, because it might just be something like accounting takes me four hours each day. But if I didn't have to do that manually, I could spend that time with my kids, right? So, you know, when they say, I, I want to spend that time with my kids, how much this is bothering them. And then you sort of try to, you know, figure out how how to get deeper into understanding that problem space. So you ask them better questions. You don't lead them to provide the pro provide the answers that you want to hear. Then there are things like when you hear them complain about something, you want to know more about it. You want to understand why is it so bad? What is it that's so painful about this? And what do you what do they do to deal with that situation? Do they have workarounds? You'll find especially in this you know, segment that I love to work with of SMBs, they are very great at finding hacks and workarounds for all of these, you know, situations where they need to save time for themselves, for their business, for their families. 
and understanding those workarounds and how they, you know, what sort of workflow they follow uh, to meet their end goal is very critical in also identifying how you will solve a particular problem. So you ask them more questions and dig deeper into, uh, into it when they say, uh, when they complain about something. On the flip side, if they request you for something, there can be, you know, many people, who, uh, many of these customers who will say, we would love to have a feature that does this. Now, you need to understand, is it really that feature that they need or is it something else? So ask them questions like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve here? How are you going to use this feature? Right, and what is the outcome that you're expecting from this? How will you know that you have achieved this outcome? How will you know that you've succeeded, that this feature has worked for you? Now, when you ask questions like that, you may find that it's not really this feature that they want, but they're trying to solve a problem which is more pertinent to them, and they think this feature might be the solution. But for all you know, there may be a very, very real, simpler alternate solution to that, and they just don't know it yet. The other thing that, that I would say is you need to avoid making assumptions. As you're having these conversations, don't assume anything. Ask questions where you need to ask questions, because that's what will help you form a better problem statement. If you make assumptions, it's almost like you're setting yourself up to um, you know, a failed problem statement, which will then lead you to potentially solve or uh, you know, develop a solution which may not work for our customers. Awesome. It's a great narration of uh, how you spoke about like identifying who that person will be and how to reach out to them. And thanks for sharing your example. I'm sure that is going to help many. And then um, also asking the right question. I think that's very, very important. And uh, things that doesn't come naturally to many of us and uh, sharing some of the example that uh, you just shared. And that definitely helps some leading uh, questions that people can start uh, leading their discussion with their end users. Uh, that sounds great, uh, Namrata. I'll pause for a second and see if in the audience if they have any question or else I have a follow-up question as well. If any of you have questions, you can raise your hand and then I will invite you to the stage and that's when you can unmute and ask question. Okay, looks like nobody has raised hand. So I'll just move forward and ask my next follow-up question to you. Um, like Now that we spoke about what are the different ways to do research, understand people, understand the problem space to find an opportunity or identify an opportunity. So what are some of the key factors? It may sound like when you are trying to infer uh, things from this research or interviews and things like that there are maybe a couple of ideas that might come to your mind or a couple of opportunities that may come to your mind how would you look at like which is the opportunity should go after like what are the key factors you would consider while evaluating these opportunities yeah absolutely so what you will find usually when you are talking to customers you will you will select maybe 10 15 20 30 40 depending on how much how um, you know how much you need to learn or how little you know about that space you may choose a certain uh, you know size of the customers that you you talk to and as you talk to them you will find that a lot of problems come raised rise to the surface 
Now, there are multiple things you need to be you need to do in order to figure out which one is the one, you know, the problem going after the the problem worth going after, worth solving. And one of the things that we usually do when we are talking to customers, when they come up with, you know, a, a set of problems is we ask them to help us stack rank it to see like if there was one thing that, you know, a magic wand that could help change just one thing, what would that be of all of the problems that um, you know, they highlighted. But that's just one part of the puzzle. There is so much more that you need to do in order to be sure that this problem is really worth going after. You have to figure out, is this problem relevant to a large enough audience that it's going to, you know, give you the ROI that you need? Um, now, whether it's a startup or a larger organization, you're going to have to ultimately drive revenue. It's not, these things are not, you know, mutually exclusive. I'm solving a problem for a customer, but it does not have any business uh, value. So you have to understand if that problem is relevant to a large enough segment. And if it is maybe relevant to more segments than just one. So, and this is another reason why SMBs become a very, um, you know, interesting segment to work with, um, at least from my perspective, is because they start out small they have a set of unique problems as those as they evolve their problems evolve and you can keep building on you know those problems you started with solving something very simply with a basic set of features and then you layer on top of those features to solve their most more complex use cases and problems so you have to be sure that maybe there are some you know um adjacent segments to which this um you know solution will be applicable you have to also understand if users are actively looking for a solution for this problem. Many a time it happens that, you know, you, you find a problem that seems big enough for you, but it isn't the right time, right? This right time is something that I don't know if um, you, you are, uh, you know, you might have seen blog posts or Twitter uh, posts on, but timing is very critical when you're going, with, uh, you know, launching a zero to one product. Now, by right time, what do we mean? It's really about, you know, customers may know that this is a big enough problem that it's going to, you know, impact them in a lot of ways, but they just don't have enough either resource or um, you know funding money to pay to solve that problem at that point and if they don't have that then what is it meaningful for you to solve it right right away right so then that goes into uh, the prioritization consideration as well the other thing to look at is are there other alternative alternative ways to solve this are there competitors in the market are there you know supplementary uh, products in the market for example, um, currently now uh, the product that we are building at uh, Intuit, we find that very often customers are using spreadsheets as a solution, as an alternative. And as much as we would, you know, we know spreadsheets are not going to solve their problem. They're not efficient. They are error prone. It requires a lot of manual work and it takes a lot of time. They're still okay to use it. So you have to also know if they are, you know, willing to, uh, leave their discomfort zone of using the spreadsheet that they have sort of familiarized themselves with and are open to this whole new solution that you, you are eventually going to put out. And then, of course, all of this boils down to, you know, your potential business impact and the ROI. So being able to map all of this and, you know, prioritizing, stack ranking your, all of those problems that you discovered, stack ranking them to ensure that, 
it is a big enough, relevant enough, meaningful enough problem to solve um, is how you go about then identifying that, okay, this is the problem that I'm going after and building on top of that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's a great uh, way to put together a data-driven approach. Sometimes it is art and science also, like then it's more about trying out things and failing faster. Um, so um, do you think like, I know in consumer space or B2B, B2C space, it is easy to do because it's probably less expensive. In B2B, it's not that straightforward where you try out or experiment like a couple of ideas, one would work, other won't work. Uh, any thoughts out there, Namrata, you can share or uh, in B2B experiments, maybe costly or there are different ways to experiment? Uh, they are definitely costly. I think like, you know, you've hit the nail on the head with that, but there are a few different approaches that we take. One is, you know, once you've identified the problem and you say, okay, this is meaningful enough, this is my priority and I'm going after it. One thing to do is to try and get user feedback on concepts. So we create these high fidelity prototypes and do, you know, use usertesting.com or reach back out to our customers to have them interact with those prototypes to give us feedback, right? So you haven't yet invested in developing those products. You've just designed them and they can be, um, I, I, I know I mentioned uh, high fidelity prototypes, but even a step before that, they could be lower fidelity concepts that are not fully thought out. And, you know, you share them with a subset of users that you sort of uh, work very closely with through your, um, you know, entire uh, process of building the product. And they're willing to interact with that low, lower fidelity uh, um, concept to give you feedback. So you can start gathering feedback early and often. The other thing that I would say is, you know, once you've got this feedback, you've iterated on it and you say, okay, I feel fairly confident to move ahead and start building the product. I think the critical thing to do is identify your MVP, especially in the case of a zero to one. This MVP identification becomes very, very critical. It is very easy in a zero to one to say, nobody will use this unless I have these 30 features. But that might not be true. There is a, There might be a way for you to, from your larger target segment, identify the first few thousand customers for whom a very, very fine version of that MVP will work. And that's one of the exercises that as PMs, we are constantly doing, right? Okay, we know our ta target, our uh, total addressable market is 600,000, of which, let's say our, um, you know, MVP is only applicable to 10,000 users. And that's okay, because getting feedback from 10% of these 10,000 users who are actually using that is more meaningful than getting no feedback at all. And if I can do that quickly, if I can do that in a matter of three months instead of taking nine months, that is going to be more valuable to me than waiting for nine months, in which time the entire landscape of this, um, you know, of our product can change. And by landscape, I mean the opportunity that we are working with the you know competition that we are trying to um, get ahead of, uh, this whole space that we are trying to operate in can change in a matter of nine months if that's how long we choose to wait. Especially in this day and age when there is, you know, when Gen AI is helping change so many things so uh, easily, waiting longer is definitely detrimental to the business. So identifying that MVP 
and getting feedback early and often also becomes critical. Very well I hope said. that answers your question. It does, it does. So uh, how frequently, like say you're in the early stages and uh, I know that talking to people and then um, experimenting it, like what does, like if I had to imagine the schedule would look like or how many interviews I should be doing or how many times like this experimental things that I would be trying out. Is there a ballpark thing that you can share like or uh, it's depends I, like on the situation? I will definitely say that it depends. It varies from situation to situation. If I'm a startup, right, I'm a founder and I have nobody else working with me. This whole process can take me maybe three months, but I will share a typical cadence that we have at Intuit given, you know, please be aware that we have a lot of support. We have a lot of other teams that we partner and work with to make this happen. But typically what we do is we, it takes us two weeks to reach out to about 15 customers and meet with them. We do what we call follow me homes. This is the uh, you know the first part of the D4D exercise in identifying the problem statement. In parallel, we do market research to see you know, okay, this problem space is building out. Let's also start looking at the competitors in this space to see what they are doing. We, When you look at the competition, you can also look at the reviews about the competition, the pros and cons, uh, you know, that customers are currently talking about uh, on various forums, and you will see where there, where there might be gaps in the market. So you start sort of defining your strategy in these first two to three weeks. You will eventually arrive, like, you know, at that, four week mark, you'll arrive at a hypothesis of this is what my MVP needs to look like for me to get traction with the first set of customers. It's at that point that at Intuit, we have two sets of users that are very critical for us. It's SMBs as well as accountants, because that is the ecosystem within which we work. So it's at this four week to four to six week mark where we you know, sort of develop low fidelity uh, designs based on our hypothesis and our understanding of the problem space and start sharing them out for feedback with users. So that is both accountants and SMBs. And we tell them that, you know, we don't have a timeline for this yet. We don't know when this will be ready, but we would love, love to get your feedback on it. So we start and then that cadence continues month after month. We meet them at least once every four to six weeks to say, okay, this is how we've iterated based on the previous feedback that we collected from, you know, across 20 people. What do you think about this? And that process um, continues happening in parallel with us having kicked off development. So they're not mutually exclusive. It's not that we are saying we will, you know, gather feedback for six months and then start building. We start identifying our, you know, low hanging fruit. We start identifying spikes. We start building out the product and then we keep gathering this feedback in parallel. So it's a very iterative process and we layer on top of, you know, basic foundational um, pieces as we go. Awesome. Thanks that that uh, actually clarifies, clarifies a lot of things and uh, especially like the part of like, of course, uh, at Intuit, you have a lot of help, but somebody individual trying to do, they could probably do at a smaller scale and maybe at a larger time window, but at least following that pattern will be super useful. I see people have raised hand, Jessica. So let me invite you to the stage and you can unmute yourself. I just invited you to stage. Uh, go ahead and ask your question. Uh, thank you for hosting this session, Anumita. And Anumita, this has been really helpful so far. 
Um, with regards to what you were saying on interviewing customers, it sometimes so happened that people are not willing to provide feedback. So how mm -hmm. do you incentivize them uh, to give feedback? Um, so here's what I would say. It can be a bit tricky. Mm -hmm. Large companies like Intuit, we mm -hmm. have a very fixed format where, you know, customers are paid for their feedback. Okay. But, but what's critical to remember here is we are not taking a finished product to them and asking them for feedback and having and paying them for it. Because in that situation, they will most, uh, uh, you know, frequently give you very positive feedback. Mm -hmm. What what we are doing with them is taking them with us on this journey and making them partners in building something that is going to be meaningful to them in the end. So it is in their best interest to provide us relevant feedback, right? They feel like they are a part of this journey. And when this product is really live, they would have been the first few people who have contributed to see, become to having this be a reality. And this is something we hear from our accountants as well as small businesses in that they they really appreciate being part of this journey because it helps them with their thinking and improving their business processes as well. So I think it's a little bit of, you know, how do you make them feel like they are your partners mm -hmm. um, and not just, you know, in incentivizing them monetarily. Got it. Thank you. Great question, Jessica. I, I I can just add one more thing, Namrata. Like, thanks for sharing your Intuit experience. That's definitely valuable. And I think Intuit has designed it very nicely that it's not as hard. But somebody is working on a startup, like, or do not have a, a partner to work with. I think what I've seen also, uh, like, when you ask for feedback, that is taken in a very different way. And as you mm -hmm. rightly said, like, for example, people might be pa as passionate as you in the similar space, and they might be also the individual who are trying to solve for themselves. And I've seen like finding those people and working with them has been incredibly valuable. One, they are living with that pain every day, but they are also passionate about solving for it. And finding those champions and working with them um, have really paid off. I've seen at least with my experience, I thought I will just add to it. Yeah, no, that's a very fair point. And I will say, like, if you approach with the, um, you know, with the goal to understand their problem, and you're actually, you know, through that effort, listening to them and building empathy, it will very easily, very quickly become clear to them. And they will be very willing participants in the discussion. On the flip side, if you're going to them with the approach of, this is what I'm building and this is what you have to buy, you will quickly see walls go up, right? So it's it's a lot about building that empathy and having them truly believe that you want to solve their problem. You don't just want to sell them a product, you want to solve their problem. Absolutely. I see Maria has a hands raised. Uh, Maria, I'm inviting you to the stage. Uh, unmute yourself and ask question. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon from California. My name is Maria O'Halloran. I am a strategic marketer and I work specifically in the executive space. So my customers are the SVPs and C-suite members of the world. And I thought I would add um, at LinkedIn, what I saw worked really well was that once you had reached a relationship with your customer that had gone from 
from a vendor to a trusted advisor, then you had enough social capital and business capital in the relationship to ask for and receive the time and the feedback on these product um, developments that were un- under process. And then they felt like they were part of building the solutions that they needed for their business as well. And I saw that at Microsoft as well. So I thought I'd, I'd add that lens of there's a component to the relationship that is much more fruitful when you're at that trusted advisor level. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. And, and, you know, to your point, this is so much easier to do sort of at, you know, larger organizations like LinkedIn, uh, Intuit even, because we have so many systems and support in place to help build and uh, foster those relationships. For somebody who's in a in a startup though, or just starting out or on their own, it might be a very difficult landscape, uh, you know, to finding these customers and building that relationship. And they may not necessarily have the time to build that and foster the relationship in order to get meaningful feedback. So there is also, you know, some consideration there for how quickly might you build that empathy for the user and, you know, have them trust you enough to share their uh, problems with you on a day-to-day. Absolutely. And thanks a lot, Maria, for chiming in and sharing LinkedIn and uh, Microsoft experience. I know it's a good uh, flavor. Everyone will get to hear it, like how it happens at larger organization, because we take a lot of things for granted. And actually, there's a massive team involved behind the scene who are like nurturing those relationships, building those trust. And something probably um, is a uh, like a good, um, I think, advice that startup owners or some who, who is starting on their own can take those on. Um, but as Namrata rightly said, uh, time is a big thing. Uh, if any of you have any ways to crack that, like I, I think this is a great thing, like nurturing relationship always pays up. And if, uh, if like I'm a startup owner or I don't have that time and liberty, are there any resources they can rely on and, and, and still leverage the relationship or nurturing? Because that, that's actually very valuable. And that's why I think uh, bigger companies are able to do this more effectively. Um, maybe if any of you have anything to share, how startup owners or somebody who is starting on their own can look out for resources? Yeah, I think like from my perspective or from my experience, it's mostly been about, you know, going, finding those places where um, your, you know, your target market is physically present and possibly doing business and, um, you know, observing them there and then trying to sort of, you know, have those start, start off those conversations in those locations, but then quickly take it on to, um, you know, having those meetings in their area of, uh, in their specific business location. Uh, that that worked for me at my own startup, um, you know, and most of the customers that I got initial feedback from and, you know, an understanding of the problem space that I was trying to solve for were people that I had never met in my life before. And the only thing that they really appreciated was that I had gone to where they were working and I was just, you know, taking notes and not asking them questions, not disturbing them, but just, you know, looking at those specific little things that they do in order to make one sale or in order to, you know, get something set up and started. And just having, you know, gone through that process sort of gave them the indication that I was 
a curious person trying to understand more rather than sell them something. It sounds like, again, uh, as an individual, if you're starting on your own or early stage startup, looks like you had to put a lot of effort um, that's valid. Um, and I I guess there's no second, I mean, uh, alternative to that. Um, however, like I would be still interested and I don't know probably the right answer yet. Maybe somebody else has and if anything comes to uh, any of you who are listening to this call as well, uh, that it, are there any resources that these people can rely on to build those relationships apart from them self-putting out there, you, you're one person or a small team, you can only do so much. But if there is a way to do at scale, uh, love to hear that. You can always DM me or um, also share um, by raising your hand. I see Akshit has raised a hand. Akshit, I'll unmute yourself, I'll invite you to stage, unmute yourself and ask question. Go ahead, Akshit. We can't hear you if you're trying to talk. Okay. Um, Are you able to hear me? Yeah, now we can hear you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madhumita and Namrata for hosting this. Um, no, I just want to uh, sorry, introduce myself. I'm Akshit. I'm a founder of a startup uh, based in New York, building products for Shopify store owners um, to address uh, problems for cart conversion and also uh, problems for online shoppers uh, who have, you know, sort of questions about products when they're shopping. So uh, think about, um, you know, if you're shopping a piece of furniture, you know, uh, what's the size uh, of, you know, uh, the futon or, you know, what kind of material does, uh, you know, the futon sort of as, uh, right? All these questions, you would go down the comment section or do Google searches. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, try to solve this by, uh, providing a platform where you can talk to sort of a real person looking AI that which can answer these questions, right? So one of the things I wanted to highlight um, from what everyone was talking about earlier was, you know, I think building that trust with like early customers, I had the most uh, you know, sort of enlightening moment. And uh, one of the things I think sort of worked for you, Namrata, has also worked for me is, you know, going to uh, a place physically where your customers are. In my case, um, I actually started going to the Shopify office in New York and sort of started meeting people at events there. And then later on, I started hosting my own events and then uh, also started a Slack community and invited them over. And I was doing all of this uh, by myself, right? So solo. Uh, type of journey. And what I've realized is uh, by going through that sort of relationship building phase, right, in the first, right, you're sort of like engaging and, you know, maybe getting to know, know the person and also their understand their pain points and maybe like having the next step of, you know, maybe inviting them over to your own community. Um, you know, I was really able to like foster relationships and uh, not only I got customers out of it, but also amazing feedback loops uh, that, uh, you know, I was very struggling uh, to get those before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Akshat. I totally hear you. Like, um, I get Madhumita's point that, you know, it's a lot for a single 
um, startup founder to have to do for, uh, all by themselves because it's not limited to just this. You have to do so many other things in parallel, but the value to be gained from it is immense. The relationships that you foster by doing this and the learnings that you get are are more or less ir irreplaceable. But to answer Madhumita's question on, you know, what else might a startup founder do, um, you know, if they didn't have enough time, uh, another place to look at is, you know, communities where where these people are, where your target audience is talking to each other about the problems that they're facing and ways where they're discussing or asking for solutions of other, uh, you know, people in the similar uh, situation. And these communities exist on social media platforms. They're definitely there on Facebook. So, you, you know, if you can find the right communities, uh, you will be able to get some, you know, at least some learning uh, from there. That's great. I mean, this is a great conversation. Uh, thanks, Maria, for starting with it. And then thanks, Namrata and Akshit sharing your journeys and looks like if I had to summarize the themes that are really standing out like there's no second thoughts about nurturing a relationship it pays a lot in long run and people who are like just on their own or solopreneur or just early stage startup the way they could do is like going in person events is one of the best way and other ways of doing that is going out to communities and a community could be present online or offline and that's another way to uh, engage with your users yeah that that's a nice interesting learning and uh, that kind kind of like we are only having 15 minutes so i would dive into the next uh, phase of this journey which is once you figured out uh, what you are going to build uh, and now you are into validation phase and we talked about a little bit of how to validate your idea. Thanks, Namrata, again, sharing that. Um, and if you could like quickly summarize in terms of um, how do you know your idea is viable enough um, and has enough market potential? And uh, if there are any uh, different types of customer discovery uh, to get there, if you can throw some light on that will be great. Um, okay, just to be sure that I got the question. Um, yeah, do you want me to talk a little bit about the different uh, customer discovery methods that we use to identify what to build? Yeah, so I think uh, we briefly touch base on like how to validate your idea, right? So that mm -hmm. is given. So now um, validating idea is great, but this idea is viable for a certain large enough market and that's the phase we are in and in that when we say large enough market and potential it's it's market is again end of it it's the customers uh, who are part of that and then yeah. uh, what what are the different discovery methods uh, that you can use to kind of make sure that your idea is viable for that large enough market yeah i think so i think identifying viability is a factor of many of these things that uh, you know we've already talked about but i'll just summarize really quickly on you know the the like high level things that i would touch upon in order to identify viability one like i mentioned before is really understanding the customer problem and ensuring that that customer problem is relevant to a large enough audience that is willing to pay for it if you don't understand the problem well and there isn't a big enough market that's willing to pay for it um, your viability is already compromised. So that would be like my focus. 
right? So that goes back to your um, customer interviews, customer journey map mapping, uh, identifying pain points, and really building empathy for the customer and the problem that they're facing. And then doing some sort of a qualitative analysis on top of that, maybe through surveys, uh, or, you know, there are uh, oftentimes you have a lot of statistics and research available um, in white papers that you could leverage to sort of, you know, complement your learnings to see if, you know, this this makes for a large, large enough problem to be solving. And uh, looking at the competitor analysis will give you a sense of, you know, what is the competition doing today? How are they solving this problem? How might I do it differently in a way um, that I can differentiate? And charge for it? And how much can I, you know, will somebody be willing to pay for it? Now, how much they would be willing to pay for it largely depends on what they are using today and what other options are available in the market. If everybody is very comfortable doing what they are doing today with spreadsheets, which is free, uh, or Google Sheets, which is free, uh, then it is very likely that, you know, they may not want to switch. But if it is a complex enough problem that even Google Sheets being free is still leading to you know errors and complications like we often see in scenarios uh you know for with accounting and taxes then you know there is there is something there for us to solve for so viability essentially becomes um you know a factor of all of these things very rightly said i think uh, that's an important factor while considering like viability for a market and then it's best to understand like what's working, what's not working. And then maybe going from there, like if there are people who are not solving for it or or maybe there's a better way to solve for it. That's a very good insight. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, now we can like dive into the next sec section, which is uh, building a product that meets the needs for uh, the target market. Now that we know this is the target market to go after, we have an MVP and uh, we are just trying to further fine-tune and uh, at some point you are able to understand who is your target market specifically in the beginning it's a lot of experimentation hypothesis and you're continue to validate uh, your ideas through the journey but now that you are at a point you know okay this is what is working and um, now I'm going to go all out and build this product further in that case like how do you define uh, what are the ways you, one can think about like pinpointing that target market now you know this is my larger space but the specificity how you can get to that specificity in terms of defining the target market um Okay, uh, just to clarify, are we defining here the needs of the target market at this point once we have an MVP validated? Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, kind of. Um, where you are going to now define, okay, these are the specifications of your target market. You might have begun with a large market and thinking mm -hmm. your idea is going to work and you're experimenting, validating different hypotheses. And the large market could have different people in it and that it could be like um like a lot more segments might be involved and how to define that like one thing that you can go after like this is obviously this uh serviceable market right and then getting to the target market like which is where you will probably stand strong and continue to grow yeah fair okay so the i would almost say 
you know, the, the first thing for you to do is to sort of narrow your target market as much as possible to begin with and keep narrowing it to address the needs of a niche. But bear in mind that if that, uh, if that solution that you ultimately build has, you know, adjacent markets that it can, uh, you know, scale to, then that's where your, you know, happy place is. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. If, if you start looking at small businesses, now within small businesses, they, they can be product-based businesses or they can be service-based. They can be a mix of the two. They can be indiv individuals who do a little bit of everything. If, let's say we, we pick product-based businesses. In that, they can be the ones that, uh, that sell all online or sell offline or do both. They can be doing B2C, B2B or both. They can Their revenue can be under 1 million, 1 to 5 million or higher than 5 million. The more you narrow this down right in the beginning, the more focused you will be on the problem. And the more focused you can get on the problem, the better you will solve for it, the better you will define your MVP. Because essentially the problems and challenges faced by a product-based business that does both B2C and B2B at one to five million of revenue are very different from the problems of a person that sells products to end consumers offline and does under one million in sale. So clarifying and establishing this target market early on and really understanding that problem will help you focus. And that is the focus that you need in order to build the zero to one product. Makes does that sense. sort of answer your question? Yeah, it does. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just to summarize what I understood, uh, and in addition to like what you said, um, problem space i think while defining the target market uh, just be more uh, like specific and go narrow as much as possible until you know it is specific enough uh, that you are addressing the specific needs and then you can think about like scaling like premature scaling is not good that's what i heard and then second thing is uh, also while narrowing down your target segment um, think about what are the uh, characteristics that is going to define them like, and then going from there. Is that what uh, Namrata you were saying? Yeah, that is that is the gist of what I said, except I will also add when you're going narrow, don't lose focus on the fact that eventually you have to grow. Yeah. So you're, you don't narrow it down to such a niche market that there isn't enough of it to grow to, to scale to, to earn from. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very valid thing. Um, I think most of the time what happens is like people go down that path to be like, okay, I need to hit the niche first and then scale. But in that whole process, you miss out the fact very, very well said. Like, I mean, we're not ready to scale anymore. And that's... Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think I'll, we have a few, four minutes. I'll quickly give an example of this just to make it more clear. When I was working on my startup, right? We were looking, what we wanted to do was help independent Indian designers connect with wholesale buyers in the US and Europe. And now designers can be in many different categories. We decided to focus on apparel. Within apparel, we decided to focus on those that are making apparel out of cotton. We decided to focus on those that were making, um, you know, for, uh, doing cottons, whites, blacks, neutral colors. So our 
our segment became narrower and narrower for our MVP. But we knew that there are many different categories to add on to and grow to. Right. But solving for this became much easier because their end to end needs were more specific and small, uh, a, a smaller focus for us. Thanks a lot. I think the example makes a lot more sense. And I'm sure who are listening to it, they can relate to it. And at least from application standpoint, what you were sharing earlier. So that's very valuable. Thanks for sharing that. I know we have three minutes. My last question to you would be like to summarize your rewards and challenges as a e-commerce owner because you were uh, at some point and that'll be a great insights or key takeaway for the audience who are listening to. We can uh, quickly take that question and then maybe use one minute if you can summarize. After that, maybe we can spend two minutes to see if anyone else has any questions. Sure. I think like for me, the biggest reward is that my focus is on SMBs. And the thing is that these SMBs, you know, they operate in these micro economies, creating jobs and just basically, um, you know, helping these micro economies survive. And for them, their, their needs and their problems are so unique. And the fact that they, you know, start out with so much hope and with, you know, anticipation of where they will be and how they will grow. And eventually to have a large percentage of them just die out in four to five years is really sad. So to be able to solve their problems meaningfully, that is the reward that I find in this whole, you know, e-commerce for SMB space. Very well said. Thanks a lot for sharing that. I think that kind of overrules all the challenges that would be there. I always uh, hear this people saying that like, hey, what are the rewards and challenges? I see it in a different way. Like if you're passionate about the space, you will find it rewarding. Even if there is a significant challenge, you'll be all out for solving it. It's something that you can't connect with the space well and you uh, said your passion for the SMB space and that clearly shows out and given the fact that you're working at Intuit that even <laughs> further uh, uh, like uh, defines it so yeah that sounds great and thanks for sharing your journey and thanks for your time today uh, it was I definitely found a lot of value listening to you and I'm sure all the people who are listening to it also finding value and uh, thanks Akshit and Maria earlier and uh, uh, I think we have one more person who asked like a lot of Jessica and mm -hmm. asking great questions and making it interactive. So thanks a lot. We have one minute. Any last questions or thoughts anyone has, you can raise your hand and we can uh, take that question and end up with that. It looks like uh, no one has any questions. So I think... Uh, that's all uh, I, I wanted to go over today. And uh, thanks a lot for listening to us and asking great questions. And thanks again, Namrata, for your time and sharing your journey and great examples. So um, it was so great to have you. Here. And it, it's, this has been a delight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, same here. Thanks a lot. So with that, we conclude this discussion and uh, thanks for listening to us and 